Well, good morning and welcome everybody to Encounter Church. We are one church in a variety of locations, and this morning I get to be with our Fulton Heights locations, and I'm so grateful and I'm so glad that, uh, that we can be together this way and that we continue on the series that we kicked off last week called Priorities. Uh, Priorities is a, is a study on the Old Testament minor prophet in the book of Haggai, in the Bible. And listen, we, we uh, for the first time ever, uh, did this devotional study to kind of come alongside and to complement the series together. So I hope you grabbed one of these last week. If not, we still have some more. Grab one on the way out. Grab one for your friends or for your neighbors, somebody who's dialing into this series. I really do truly believe that this is going to be one of those series that, that's going to be helpful for you to come back to again and again when you're trying to, like, prioritize the the right thing, the good thing, even the best thing in your life. And this devotional is an excellent opportunity for you to elevate the important over the tyranny of the urgent, over those notifications and those deadlines that keep us from doing the most important thing, the unfinished assignments, as we called them last week in part one. Last week, we kicked off this series. Remember, Haggai is a prophet sent by God, a, a prophet to go to the people and say, listen, why in the world are you living in these finely finished paneled homes, right? Why are you laying granite countertops in your kitchens when the Lord's house is still in ruins? It's a question of mixed up priorities. And we heard last week that we have all kinds of reasons why we we allow the the urgent or or the unimportant to take that highest prioritized level in our lives and in our hearts. And just a a couple of those, remember, is, is this capacity that we have to say, it's not no, it's not yet. Right? Those powerfully destructive words in the English language to say, it's not that I'm turning you down, Jesus. It's not that I'm turning you down, most important thing. I'm just saying, not yet. Uh, that's one of them. Uh, another one of the excuses that we make is that we end up prioritizing our own comfort over God's calling in our lives. And the third one is just sometimes that unfinished assignment that God is asking of us. And maybe we're, we're intimidated because we're unclear on the details. And God comes in with these remarkably clear words and these clear steps. And he goes, okay, build the temple. If you don't know how, I'll give you three easy steps. Go up to the mountain, bring down the timber, build my house. It is truly that simple. Go up, bring down, build my house. A brick at a time, build my house. Don't put off until tomorrow what you can do today. Your future, church, your future is created by what you do today not by what you do tomorrow. And this morning what we're doing in part two is going to be opening up Haggai chapter two. And we're going to see what happens when discouragement hits. We're going to see what happens when we look around and we see what it could be and we see what it is. We see where we want to be and we see where we are. And the only word to describe it is just plain discouragement. Uh, We're on the same boat. I'm in the same boat. I get discouraged. Uh, I've been described as a person, believe it or not, who has passionate but short-lived hobbies. My friends know they come alongside me, and I get really, really excited about something, and I go way into it, and then they ask me about it maybe a month later, sometimes less, and I'm I'm less passionate. And I'm like, I've kind of moved away from that thing entirely. Uh, This happens with me with hobbies all the time. Uh, First of all, years ago, in my early 30s, I remember it seemed like everybody in my stage of life had to get into either World War II history or smoked meats. 
And I had no interest in either of those things. And so I'm like, I had better pick a hobby before a hobby picks me. (laughs) And so I started testing the waters. I try a bunch of different stuff. One of the things that I tried is woodworking. Kudos to those of you people who know how to build stuff. I gave it a shot for a little while, really, really passionate about it. I did exactly one furniture piece, and I still keep that furniture piece somewhere undisclosed inside of my house, mostly as a reminder to just myself as to why I no longer build furniture. I do not have the attention to detail that that requires. I'm so incredibly passionate about building the furniture, and then when I start to get into it, and I miss steps, and I don't sand it all, the way and I don't sink my screws in and it's a little wobbly and then it falls over I just get discouraged unlike many of you when I get discouraged I give up and I move on move on to the next hobby whatever that hobby might be in this case the next hobby that I moved on to is uh, saltwater uh, aquarium keeping like uh, like growing coral reefs I thought this is so cool you know it's the ocean right here in my living room it's an awesome time Saltwater aquariums, in addition to requiring an attention for detail, like I told you, I do not have, it also requires an immense amount of patience, again, which I don't have. Couple that with the fact that I'm hanging out in one of these like um, closed Facebook groups where we get to discuss our weird hobby together, and this guy comes up and he's like, hey, Pastor Dirk, I didn't know that you were an aficionado. I'm like... I was. (laughs) Not anymore. It's dead. I am done. Passion gone. Discouragement fits in. And here I am just completely giving up on it. But nothing. None of these hobbies compare to the time that I tried more or less successfully, unsuccessfully to run 26 miles consecutively in the Grand Rapids Marathon. I entered this thing and I am wildly untrained for it, you know, underprepared as to what I'm going to be doing out there. I'm like, I'm running. My leg is cramping up. An air pod falls out. I'm hot. I'm angry. I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm on mile 18, and this octogenarian woman comes shuffling right past. And and, and as she does, she's like, you got this. Keep on running. I'll see you at the finish line. (laughs) Well, I'm done. (laughs) I'm giving up. Yeah, I can see the end is coming in right now. I'm hot, I'm lost, I'm in the middle of nowhere, I'm never going to be able to make it back. I'm thinking, there's a field, I'm just going to go roll over and die right there in the field. I'm confessing my sins, I'm recommitting my heart to Jesus, just in case. I'm discouraged. The passion is gone, and I'm giving up. Church, this is my invitation. Where have you experienced a level of that discouragement? Maybe you're in it right now. Maybe you're in that season. Maybe you're going into that season and you don't know it. It's just right around the corner. Maybe you came to church with somebody today or you're watching this message today with somebody who who needs to hear it because they're discouraged and they need to hear some good words as, as to how to deal with it. There's a huge amount of ways that you can get discouraged in life, in faith, I think every January we, we set these, uh, these health and fitness goals. Health and fitness goals, church, are fertile grounds for growing discouragement. We set these goals. We start off passionate, only eating green, leafy vegetables, 
if I want to if I want to snack, if I want to treat myself, I might take my cucumbers and I'm going to dip it in a little bit of salsa. What a treat that is, right? Step on a scale at the end of the week to see if we've made some progress. Yes, progress. One pound. One pound in the wrong direction. I gained a pound eating salad. How is that possible? The passion is gone. Discouragement sets in. And all that I want to do is just simply quit quit at all. I think every summer, like we start off with these like lofty ambitions, you know, this summer I'm going to stay on top of everything, right? Uh, in order to, to make the time that I want to spend with, with, with kids or with family, I'm, I'm going to take care of the house in a much better way. And I got like my color-coded chart, right? Uh, I've got like Monday is laundry day, uh, Tuesday are floors, Wednesday is bathrooms, but on Wednesday, the laundry also needs to be redone. And I notice that the floors are dirty, but those are Monday and Tuesday's job. And what day is it anyway? And then everything goes out the window. I love this quote by Mike Tyson. He goes, a famous boxer. He goes, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. And sometimes that's what it feels like. When we come in with our plans and we're passionate and it's a good idea and it's an opportunity to grow in a way, in a particular direction, the kind of the kind of direction that God is asking us to step into. And then, well, it feels like you get punched in the face, doesn't it? And the passion is gone, discouragement sets in, and it makes us want to quit. So this morning, guys, what we're going to be doing is we're opening up, we're opening up the story of Haggai, and we're going to hear God and experience God opening up our lives and speak to us today. And he's actually going to tell us what in the world you do When you're so discouraged, you have no idea what to do. So let's go to the story. We're going to do a a little review of the story in case some of you are new from Haggai chapter 1. And we're going to start off at the very, very end of Haggai 1 in verse 13. And we see that this is what what the story says. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, uh, gave this message to the Lord's people. And he said, I am with you. Remember those words. We're coming back to him at the end. I am with you, declares the Lord. And so the Lord stirred up the spirit of, and we've got three people or three groups, stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. He's the governor of Judah. He's kind of like the the civic leader. Uh, And the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, spiritual leader. And the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And we just pause right there. The whole remnant of the people. Remember, those are the people who came back out of exile. It's like 50,000 people, not nearly the extent of the people that used to live in Jerusalem before the Babylonians attacked, before the temple was destroyed. But we've got 50,000 people, and the Lord is stirring up the spirit, the whole remnant of the people. They came together. They hear this encouragement that we heard last week. Go up to the mountain, bring down the temple, or bring down the timber, build my temple. They hear that, and they came together, and they began to work. They began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. On the 24th day of the sixth month, it took them a little while, but they got there. Brick by brick, piece of burned up, charred up, leftover, broken bricks, one at a time, they started building. They got to work. It will have been about one month. One month of work. One month of going up, bringing down a building. One month of stacking those bricks and those timbers on top of each other. 
one month, and they take a little break, and they experience this festival. They step back to examine their work. And I want, I want you to see a bit of the irony in the moment here because what they're doing, the festival, it's not just any festival. We see the dates written on there. So Haggai the prophet, he wants us to anchor this thing in history and to know what's going on. And so I want you to know what's going on. This is the festival of booths uh, or the festival of tents, sometimes it's called. It's one of the three biggest holidays uh, in the Jewish calendar. For us as an encounter, it's like Christmas, Easter, and fall launch, right? Well, they've got like Passover. They've got, they've got the Festival of Booths, one of the biggest three holidays. And what this celebration is, is a time when everybody leaves their homes and they go out into the desert and essentially they go on a camping trip. Because what they want to do is they want to remember the time that God rescued them from the wilderness. That God rescued them from the 40 years that they spent wandering around in the wilderness where they were living in tents. So for a season, about two weeks, they would live in the wilderness. They would live in tents to remember the time when they had to live in tents. And then they get to celebrate when they come back home into their finished and furnished homes. A lot of us, if we're honest... Camping holds the very same place in our hearts, right? A lot of us, we go camping, we sleep in tents, we sleep without a mattress, we sleep without running water, just so that when we come back, we appreciate the amenities of life. We go camping because camping makes the rest of our life look like a vacation, doesn't it? You can see that I clearly do not understand the concept of camping, but that's fine. The function for them was it made them appreciate God's goodness in that moment. They have this festival, this celebration. They all go out in tents. They celebrate the goodness of God. And then they come back. They come back to the temple that they've been working on all month long. And there's a crowd. And they're just kind of staring at it. And the prophet Haggai steps up to the podium and the microphone. And this is what he says a few verses later in chapter 2, verse 3. He says, question for you. He goes, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? I just want you to hear the scene. I want you to experience the scene. Haggai remembered the former temple. We described it a little bit last week. It's Solomon's temple. It was a majestic temple. Um, some history years, it's been something like 66 years at this time since the temple was destroyed. When Haggai steps up to the podium and he goes, uh, listen, we got a nice crowd here. I just need a show of hands. How many of you remember, personally, one of my earliest memories, I don't know, five years old, 66 years later, the people that raised their hands, maybe they're in their mid-70s and up, life expectancies that long ago, I, I, I don't know. I'm just imagining this sea of people and Haggai steps up and he goes, how many of you, how many of you remember the former temple? And I just want to submit to you, like not a lot of hands go up. But the ones that do, man, the people around them, the, the kids and the grandkids, they grew up on those stories 
of, of hearing what that temple was about and the amenities and the luxuries and the fine finishes of God's house. And the question that Haggai answers, the rhetorical question that he asks is, does it look to you like nothing? Actually, I think it was worse than that. Because nothing is what they had before. This time, the timber that they brought down and the bricks that they started building with, the custom of the day, inevitably, they would have reused some of the bricks from the original temple, from Solomon's temple. What I'm saying is these were not finely cut, square, perfectly rectangular bricks, not by a long shot. Uh, the bricks that they were used, I think, I think they had char marks on them from before. I'm imagining this temple that they're, that they're putting up and, and the walls of this thing are, is like burned up pieces of plywood that they were using to fill in the gaps wherever they could. They were doing the best they could with the resources that they, were, that they had, which, should we say, were a bit limited at the time. Does it not look to you like nothing? Haggai, if I'm honest with you, it looks like worse than nothing because this temple looks like a monument to our own disobedience. It looks like a monument to our own destruction. That God pulled back his presence from us. The Babylonians came and they absolutely destroyed our spiritual identity. Maybe it doesn't look like nothing. Maybe it looks absolutely worse than nothing. The tone, discouragement, probably doesn't begin to describe it. I want us to see something in those words here. These words weren't just the words of Haggai. They were the words of Haggai to the people. But by the power of God's Holy Spirit, we believe it was God's words spoken, not to, but spoken through Haggai to the people then, and it's God's word spoken to us people here today. He's speaking to me, and he's speaking to you. The discouragement that you're in right now, does it not feel like nothing or, or possibly worse than nothing? I don't think, I don't think that God is doing this um, to be cruel, I don't think he's like putting salt in the wound. I don't think he's like twisting the knife in our backs. I don't think he's being mean. I think he's being the opposite of that. I think he's being as loving and as kind and as gracious and as gentle as he possibly could while also making a critically important point. Because before we answer the the big question for this morning is what in the world do you do when you're so discouraged that you don't know what to do? Before we get to that question, we'd be wise to look look at the roots of discouragement in the first place. Why do we become discouraged in the first place. And I'm going to give you two of these roots of the discouragement that we experience because we have to know why in order to deal with it. And it's embedded within how he asked the question. When he asked the question, who's the one? Who's left? Who saw this temple in its former glory? Who remembers what it used to look like? Who's playing the first root? Who's playing the comparison game? Which is really a trap. You want to know the, the roots of discouragement, you want to know the seeds of which discouragement blossoms and grows out of? The first one is comparison. 
You guys remember what this temple used to look like? You remember how it was several stories tall? You remember how kings and queens would come from all over the world just to pay a visit? You remember how it had and it had beams made of cedar and, and fir. And, and you remember how there was like gold inlaid within those finishes. You remember the incense. You remember the bronze sea. That's what they called it. The, the little washing area. They didn't, they didn't have like a little kiddie pool to wash in, wash out of. No, no, no. What they had is this massive bronze structure. As thick as a person's hand was the bowl. It held something like 10,000 gallons of water. This is their sink. This is their washing area. It was so immense and so huge in the desert with that much water that they actually nicknamed it the sea. You remember that temple. How does it look now? You want to play the comparison game. How does it make you feel? I want us to know something about the temple. When we're playing this thing, we're playing the comparison game between Solomon's temple and Zerubbabel's temple, the high priest at the time. See, Solomon's temple had the gold and the fir and the cedar and the bronze, and Zerubbabel's temple had a couple of beams that they could carry down from the mountain and some burned-up pieces of, of plywood and charred bricks. You see, the thing about it is that Solomon's temple took an immense amount of work, an immense amount of labor, and an immense amount of time. You know, the the story of Solomon's temple was one of the greatest kings that Israel had ever had in one of the most prosperous uh, times, seasons, that Israel ever had. King David says to God, I, you have been so good to me. I am going to build you uh, a house. I'm going to build you a temple to beat all the temples of the world. And God simply says, no, you're not my guy. David, I love you. I don't want you to build my temple. And so what David does, instead of building the temple, he collects the resources for the temple. So he spends the latter half of his monarchy, of his life as king, just collecting the raw materials, the cedar, the fir, the gold. He puts everything in place. He gets the architects, the designers. He draws up the plans. Everything is shovel-ready and good to go. David passes away. His son Solomon comes up onto scene. Solomon doesn't collect the materials. There, right there. Solomon spends seven years putting the materials together, simply building with the materials already gathered. What I'm simply saying is that when we talk about Solomon's temple versus Zerubbabel's temple, one of them, one of them took the latter half of one monarchy and, and the first beginning of the next monarchy in order to build the temple. Zerubbabel, one month. They spent one month on it. You want to go into a deep dive of depressing discouragement. Compare your start to someone else's finish. Compare your one-month journey to something that somebody else spent a generation and a half building. Comparison, as we know, it's not a game. It's a trap 
Comparison is the thief of joy, and it is the seeds that discouragement blossoms and grows out of. You want to know why we find ourselves in discouragement? We're playing the comparison game, which is really a trap. You know, we look over at him, and he's got a great house and a cool car. He's got a, he's got a job he loves. And you're saying, like, I can't stand my job. My car goes zero to 60 in like seven and a half miles. <laughs> and I'm renting in a place, a neighborhood that I don't even want to be in. I have no connections here at all. And I just want to be gone. I will compare my start to someone else's finish and I will find myself deep into discouragement every single time. Maybe you don't do it with you. Maybe you do it with your kids. And you, and you play the comparison game, which is really a trap, with the kids, right? And you're like, oh man, how, how can they, how can they, uh, how can they send their kids off to school with like matching outfits just about every single day? I'm just trying to like get them to wear pants on the way out of the house, right? How, how can they have time to like put baked goods in their lunchbox while also maintaining like this, this rainbow of like fruits and vegetables and nutritious meals? And I'm like, oh shoot, I, I, I forgot your lunch money again. Like, I hope maybe you can bum something from the teacher. True story, my kids at the school, we've got like these little assignment notebooks, right, to like help get the, keep the kids engaged. And I know what they're up to. They're trying to get the parents engaged. It's just like we, we, we got a report card not too long ago for our kids. And there's a little section on there of how many, how many tardies the kids had this year. And I'm like, come on, you know that this is not on the second graders to like get themselves to school. This is, this is a critique on the, on the parents, right? And I'm like looking at this number, which may or may not be in the double digits of like trying to get our kids to school on time. And it's easy to play the comparison game, the comparison trap, and to start sowing those seeds of discouragement. I mean, you want to elevate this thing through the roof, like, all the way. And, and you know this, and, and I hit this all the time, and I hope you hear it from other contexts, too. But this is your weekly public service announcement that social media is not real. Social media is somebody's filtered, cropped, and out-of-context highlight reel of their life. Meanwhile, you have your behind-the-scenes. You have your actual real life. If you want to sow the seeds of discouragement as quickly as you can, do a deep dive into that world and tell yourself that it's real. Discouragement will follow every single time. What we're looking, God is helping us to look at the seeds of discouragement. The first one that we're going to look at, the root causes of discouragement, is comparison. The second one that we see is a lack of progress. They come up to the temple and they don't see a bronze basin as big as the sea. They don't come into the temple area and see gold and cedar and fir. They don't see Solomon's temple. They see Zerubbabel's temple. And they see the lack of progress that one month of hard work has gotten them and they just plain give up. You been there? You ever try to start something new? I'm talking to like some entrepreneurs right now, some of you who are trying to start something. Maybe you're starting a business. Maybe you're starting a side hustle. Starting a ministry. Starting a new job. Starting anything. And it's like three steps forward, four steps back. 
two steps forward, one step back. You're like, I'm, I'm not getting anywhere. Anytime we've ever said to ourselves, I thought that I would be farther along than this. The lack of progress, fertile ground for discouragement. Sometimes in our faith walk, our faith journey, as followers of Jesus, we do this. God, I thought that I would be better at my devotions by now. I thought that I would be more patient by now. I thought that I would have this temper thing under control once and for all. And I don't. It's lack of progress, fertile ground for discouragement. I want to be real with you, if I could. And I'm going to be a a bit vulnerable for the next few moments. And I'm doing this not not because I'm looking for like an email or an attaboy or uh, encouraging notes. I love encouraging notes, but I'm not doing this for that. I just want to highlight, I guess, some of the times and the seasons that I get real discouraged. About a year ago uh, today, almost exactly, uh, I was prepping to come back uh, from a three-month-long sabbatical of learning and growing and, and deep personal and family spiritual growth as well. And it was so incredibly refreshing and I'm so grateful for the time. Don't get me wrong. Uh, as I'm coming back, keep in mind, it's summer 2021. Uh, you know, I'm thinking in my mind, we get to be back. Uh, I'm thinking in my mind, I get to connect with so many people that I haven't seen in a while. There's, there's people out there. And, and now, like, you know, we're, we're kind of coming out of this COVID thing. If you wanted a shot, you could get a shot. If you weren't going to get a shot, I mean, that was your choice. And you probably don't feel unsafe anyway, right? So, like, I get to see everybody. In, in church, like, you guys, I had spreadsheets made of all of the people that I wanted to connect and reconnect with. And, and it was going to be fantastic. And then we didn't get to connect. Many of you were back, and we got to do that. Many more were not. And the discouragement fits in to my heart because I look at all of the turmoil and the instability and, and, and how we as a, as a church responded and reacted and, and how it seemed like every single issue, political or otherwise, but, but like everything, it was just like the volume on that issue was just cranked all the way up to, to max. And there, was, and there was no nuance in the conversation and there was no time for, for listening and no time for understanding. And I, and I could see that too. I could see that in, in my own life. And and I get discouraged because I like look back in the past at some of those hugely charged conversations. And, and I think in the previous seven years, eight years as, as your pastor, I think that I have failed on a level. Like, like I didn't adequately prepare us for the season of turmoil that we were in. It's discouraging, and it's debilitating. And I thought that by 10 years of this ministry, I would be better prepared to deal with it. I thought we would be better prepared as a community. It's that lack of progress. Now, I'm telling you this um, simply because misery loves company. And I want you to be discouraged with me. No, no, I, I'm telling you this because we're in the same storm and we're in the same boat. Like, like we get this. 
that Jesus today is speaking to you about discouragement? What do you do when you're so discouraged that you don't know what to do? At the same time that Jesus is speaking me and he's telling me, Dirk, this is what you do when you are so discouraged you don't know what to do. Pick up your Bibles because God is speaking and he's speaking in the very next line in verse verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. And he goes now this, but now, but now, God says, be strong, Zerubbabel, the, the governor, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land back then and us in counter church here today, declares the Lord. Be strong and work, for I am with you. There it is again, declares the Lord Almighty. What do you do when you don't know what to do? He goes, be strong and do the work. Just like we heard about last week. How do I get started? Well, go up, come down, and start building. What do you do when you're so discouraged that you don't know what to do? And the Lord looks at you, and he says, be strong and get to work. I am with you. Be strong. Pick up a brick. Put it on top of another brick and get to work. When you get tired and you don't really feel like picking up any more bricks, be strong. Grab a brick and put it up on top of another brick. Don't just talk the talk, do the work. Don't just dream the dream, do the work. Don't just compare your results to somebody else's results. Grab a brick, put it down, and keep on building. Just get to work. Be strong, do the work, God says. I am with you. Brick by brick, we're building this thing. Brick by brick, we're doing the work. And we're building this thing. I love this line. I love this quote. Successful people do consistently what normal people do occasionally. We will build consistently when others might do it occasionally. When we're tired, when we don't feel like we can go on any longer, when we're so discouraged that we don't know what to do, we're going to go to the pile of rubble. We're going to go to the pile of burned up, charred up pieces of brick. And we're going to start putting them on top of one another. And we're going to get back to work because the mission is too big not to. You guys, this applies at home. When you're stuck in this relationship that you just want to be done, you just want to get out of, you just want to give up and kind of go your separate ways, when you're stuck in that kind of a marriage, you be strong and you do the work. You love your spouse even when they're not responding. You love your spouse even when it doesn't feel very good to love them. It's a decision, remember, and you get to choose every single day to do the work and to be strong, to love with a sacrificial kind of Jesus love. This applies at home with your wife, with your husband, with your kids, especially when they're making terrible decisions. You pray for them each and every day, even when they're messed up, even when they're making horrible choices. You love them and you pray for them day in and day out. Do the work. It applies in the workplace. It applies on the job site. It applies in the office. You, you honor people, even when people are doing things that aren't exactly the most honorable. There is an image of God living inside of every single person. Honor that inside of them. Give your best, even when your team isn't giving their best. Do the work. Be strong. Jesus is with you. When I am discouraged because of the lack of preparation, the lack of progress that we've seen, 
what do I do? I bring people far from God to new life in Jesus Christ, not because it's on a website somewhere as our mission statement, because it's honestly the reason why I get out of bed in the morning. This is what we do. We do the work. Don't talk the talk. Just dream the dream. We build. A brick at a time, we're building. Now that's good. Honestly, I think that I'm, I'm preaching better than you're responding right now because I think that is some good and helpful wisdom. But Haggai's got some gears for us. That's good. That's not everything. What comes next takes this to an entirely new level. Verse 9. The glory of this present house, he goes, Zerubbabel's house, will be greater than the glory of the former house, declares the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. He goes, he goes the glory of Zerubbabel's temple somehow is going to eclipse Solomon's temple. The glory of these burned up, busted up pieces of brick that Babylon destroyed somehow are going to be more glory filled in honoring to God than all of the gold and the cedar and the fur and the bronze of Solomon's temple. I mean, there's got to be some mistake because, because historians have looked into this and they, and, they, and they report to us that the glory was, was never as nice as Solomon's temple. It never rose to that level of finish. It was never as famous as it was back then. I mean, God, you must have, you must have misspoke here. There's got to be some kind of mistake. There's no mistake. There's no mistake because the foundation, the floorboards that they were laying... 550-ish years later would be walked on by the Son of God. Solomon's temple has got nothing on Zerubbabel on the work that they were doing laying the foundation for Jesus Christ himself to walk. And then what Jesus does is he says, see this temple? I'm going to take it down. Because this temple is only a physical metaphor of the temple. This temple is just a sign that points towards the temple, my presence living inside of you. See, what we know as New Testament Christians and looking at this story, what makes this so powerful and so compelling is that it's the presence of Jesus that makes the difference. You want to be strong? Bring the presence of Jesus with you to work. You want to build something incredible, glory-filling to God? Love your wife. Honor your husband. Pray for your kids. It's not the level of finish compared to somebody else. It's not the amount of progress that you've made that brings glory and honor to God. It is the presence of Jesus each and every step of the way. It's the presence of Jesus in every single brick that you lay. So let's build some bricks. If you're discouraged, hear those words from Haggai where God says twice in this little book, he says twice, be strong. Work. I am with you. And I just
just can't help but think it wasn't a mistake that Matthew 28, some of the last words that Jesus gave, make disciples of all nations. And I am with you to the end of the age. I'm not just walking on a temple. I'm taking up residence in your heart. If you'll have me, let's have them. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for this presence that you've gifted us with. Thank you for the work that you have for each one of us to do. Forgive us of all of the ways that we compare wherever we are, our start to somebody else's finish, and we find ourselves discouraged, a prison of our own making. Forgive us for the ways that we compare. Forgive us for the ways that we get discouraged when we don't see the progress that you would have us see. Lord, you're at work and you're building something. God, we might be discouraged because you're simply building it a brick at a time, but Lord, it isn't the quantity or the number or or the size of the bricks that bring you glory. It is the presence of you in every single one of our conversations and every single one of our relationships. Jesus, we pray that you would be glorified with every piece of our hearts. In your name we pray. Hey church, it's our sincere prayer that this message was able to help you find new life in Christ. And if you did find it helpful, would you consider donating to help drive this ministry forward? And don't forget, there's no substitute for doing life together. So find a worship experience, join a small group or a serving team today. You can do all this at EncounterChurch.org.